I take from my text this morning the 20th verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. But just when Joseph had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the fall of 1952, to much acclaim and with eager anticipation, the revised standard version of the Bible was released to the public. The publication, this publication event had been written about in all the major Christian periodicals and covered in the major newspapers of the day. The RSV, as it became to be known, was the product of 15 years of scholarly work. It was to be the translation of the Bible that finally replaced the King James Version in churches across the country. Much of the translation work was done at Yale Divinity School, and even today, the room where the meetings were held bears the name the Revised Standard Version Room. Within just a few years, more than a million and a half copies were sold. It was the Bible that I grew up with, and it's the one that brought me to the Christian faith. It's still probably my favorite translation. And yet, for all of its success, its release in 1952 was not warmly received by all. Fundamentalists across the country labeled it, quote, the new unholy book, the master stroke of Satan, and one of the devil's greatest hoaxes. Famously, a preacher in North Carolina burned a copy of the RSV in his pulpit while delivering his sermon, and then mailed the ashes to Luther Weigel, the professor at Yale Divinity School who had chaired the effort. Other fundamentalist leaders urged their congregations to do the same. Of course, this only had the effect of selling yet more copies. It made the reaction to, the, to Nike's Colin Kaepernick ads and the subsequent burning of Nike apparel seem tame by comparison. So what was it about the RSV that led to such a harsh reaction? Why did fundamentalists hate the RSV so much? Well, the RSV translators made the decision to translate Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 as, Behold... <clears throat> A young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Compare that to the King James Version. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's right. The RSV committee translated the Hebrew word Alma as young woman and not virgin in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. To the fundamentalists, this was an all-out attack on the virgin birth because, in our reading for today, Matthew cites this verse as the one that predicted the virgin birth. If Alma is translated as young woman rather than virgin, the implication is that Matthew's idea of the virgin birth came from a mistranslation of the Hebrew. It was a sign that Matthew got it wrong. For the fundamentalists, this was yet one more sign of the heresy of the liberals who ran the National Council of Churches and oversaw the the Revised Standard Version. One word, one choice in translation, and the fundamentalists wanted to burn the Bible. 
For someone like me, for whom the virgin birth has never been a key point of faith, this type of reaction can be hard to wrap my head around. Growing up in a UCC church, the virgin birth was never mentioned, other than in our occasional recitation of the Apostles' Creed. It was never put forth as something that I had to believe, or that mattered very much to our Christian faith in our little UCC church, or actually fairly big UCC church. It was only later that I realized why it was so, imper- why it was so important to people. Beginning with Augustine of Hippo and later affirmed by Thomas Aquinas and Roman Catholic Orthodoxy, it was argued that original sin was passed down through the sex act itself. Sex is inherently bad and sinful, and it is sex that gives rise to to sinful humans. If that is the case, and if Jesus is without sin, he must have been conceived without sex. The virgin birth was a necessity if Jesus was sinless. Even for non-Catholics, who held different views on original sin and sex, the virgin birth had major implications. If you believe, as the 4th century Nicene Creed affirms, that Jesus is, quote, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human, If you believe and affirm that, then the virgin birth makes a big difference. In that case, Jesus is unlike any other human in history, not because of his teachings or his unique connection with God, but by the fact that he is God, very God. Jesus is of the same substance as God. How can a a pre-existent person of the Trinity become human? Surely this can't happen by a normal human birth. After all, Humans are born all the time. We are all evidence of that, both for better and for worse. The only way that Jesus can be true God from true God, begotten, not made, is through a miraculous birth, a birth not through a human parent. To question the virgin birth is to question the Nicene Creed and the traditional Orthodox belief about the nature of Jesus. That's a big deal, to say the least. Maybe we should all grab some lighters and search out copies of the RSV. Catholic theologians went even farther than this. Since Jesus is God and unspeakably holy, then his mother Mary also had to be sinless in order to carry him in in her womb. This gave rise to the Roman Catholic belief of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Not only was Jesus' birth miraculous, but so was Mary's. Mary was also conceived without sex, and according to Roman Catholic tradition, she was a perpetual virgin. This leads to some intriguing interpretations of our current passage by Roman Catholic scholars. Our text for today concludes the line, quote, Jesus took Mary as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son. The implication of those lines is that they did have sex after Jesus was born. But Roman Catholic scholars have argued why that's definitely not the case, so as to preserve the theological doctrine of the, of the perpetual virginity of Mary. With all this obsession with the virgin birth, it's easy to see why liberal preachers avoid talking about Matthew chapter 1. We want to talk about the story of Christmas. Most theological liberals don't affirm the Nicene Creed. That creed is firmly rooted in the debates and controversies of the 4th century. While it's loosely based on the Bible, the use of its use of texts or the use of texts to justify the creed came more from theology than from the Bible. If you don't affirm the Nicene Creed, and if you don't believe that you're saved through the blood of Jesus on the cross, i.e. substitutionary atonement, but through personal trans- transformation and being a disciple of Jesus, then the debate over the virgin birth becomes far less significant. 
It's not a threat to our theology to claim Jesus was born through normal human intercourse. Avoiding this debate over the virgin birth is a big reason why liberal Christians use Luke's account of Christmas and not Matthew's in their Christmas Eve sermons. It creates less controversy uh, not to talk about it at all. The revised common lectionary, the revised common lectionary, the lectionary that most mainline churches use, does not include Matthew chapter 1 even as an option for a Christmas Eve or Christmas sermon. Go out and listen to sermons on Christmas Eve in the mainline churches here in Houston. I would venture to guess that nearly all of them read Luke and not Matthew. It's easier. Focus on the story. Avoid the distraction of the virgin birth. Matthew's account isn't that interesting anyway. The intriguing part of his story is in chapter 2 with Herod and the wise men. That's what we like about Matthew's birth narrative. So why bother with chapter 1? Walking down the streets of Antioch, Matthew, visibly agitated, dodged other people in the street. It wasn't the heat of the hot Syrian sun that bothered him. He'd gotten well used to that, having grown up in the area. What bugged him so much was the conversation that he had had with his cousin the night before. Like Matthew, his cousin had been born and raised an observant Jew. He never understood Matthew's obsession with Jesus and with Christians. Over dinner, his cousin had a bit too much wine and took to mocking Matthew in front of his relatives. He just wouldn't let it go. Jesus? Oh, you mean that Nazarene bastard born out of wedlock? You know that's what happened, right? I know you've heard those stories, Matthew. Jesus was conceived out of marriage. How could you worship a man like that? You were raised as a good Jew, Matthew. It's a good thing your father is no longer alive. Imagine what he would be saying about you abandoning your Judaism for that bastard Jesus. Matthew knew there was no use arguing with his cousin when he'd been drinking. It didn't lead anywhere good. But his words rankled him. He knew his cousin wasn't the only one who heard those stories of Jesus. The other week at church, one of the visitors kept asking, Isn't it true that Jesus was born out of wedlock? If so, how could he have been the Messiah of the Jews? People had tried to explain things to the visitor, but he never came back. The conversation with his cousin made up Matthew's mind. His gospel needed a beginning. And he had been thinking about adding one for a while, but now he was certain it was needed. He couldn't start with the baptism of Jesus, like Mark's gospel had. He had to answer the naysayers. Jesus had changed his life, as had the other Christians in his church. He wasn't going to let the nasty rumors spread by other Jews undermine Jesus. He knew what he wanted to write. A few moments later, Matthew was at his writing desk. He took out a fresh piece of papyrus. Later on, he would attach it to the rest of his manuscript. For now, he wanted to write. First came the genealogy. Matthew wanted his cousin to see that Jesus was of the lineage of David. Even more than that, he wanted to remind him that Abraham was supposed to be the father of the nations, not just Israel, but all the nations. The promise of God had to include Gentiles as well as Jews. Matthew diligently copied out the names he had arranged. Fourteen generations, fourteen generations, and fourteen generations. Fourteen, the number of David. Perfect. Even his adult cousin would be impressed by that. Then for the birth itself. Yes, Matthew had heard the stories about Mary. They were common enough that he couldn't ignore them. Fine, Mary might have been pregnant before she married Joseph. But the reason was because she became pregnant by the Spirit of God. Even though it wasn't in the Bible, every good Jew knew that Moses had had a miraculous birth. The great Philo of Alexandria himself had written about it. The Book of Jubilees had told of the miraculous birth of Isaac. 
Second Enoch had stories of Enoch's miraculous birth. Even the emperors of Rome had claimed miraculous births. Clearly, Jesus had one too. No one would have a hard time believing that, and it put Jesus on the same level as Moses. He had heard Christians talk about Jesus' miraculous birth before. The Spirit of God, the breath of God, the Ruach Elohim that hovered above the waters in creation, that same Spirit was a generative power for Jesus, just as it had been for Moses. Jesus was special. He was the new Moses, the one to fulfill the law that Moses had first brought from God. Matthew's mind kept racing as his quill scratched across the rough surface of the papyrus. Harkening back to the patriarchs of the Bible, particularly Jacob and Joseph, Matthew wanted this message conveyed in a dream. He modeled the phrasing of the birth announcement on the phrasing he found in Ishmael and Isaac and Samson. Like Moses, the infant like Moses, the infant Jesus would have to flee from the violence of a wicked tyrant. Like Moses, Jesus would come out of Egypt. Just like Balaam, the wise man from the east in the book of Numbers, Matthew would have wise men be the instruments of God to show Israel what they could not see for themselves. Yes, Matthew thought to himself, this was all coming together. He couldn't wait to show it to his cousin. All Matthew needed were some explicit scripture quotations to fill out his account. Taking his scrolls off his shelf, Matthew busily read through the text in Greek. An hour later, he found what he was looking for. Something he remembered reading before, a verse from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Hmm. Matthew looked at the verse again. It wasn't quite right. Mary was pregnant at the time of the quotation, after all. So saying she will conceive was out of place. Matthew changed the Greek from the virgin will conceive to the virgin is with child. There we go. That fits better with the birth narrative he wanted. It had to be miraculous and of the spirit, like with Moses. Also, he didn't want Mary to do the naming of Jesus. He wanted Joseph to name Jesus. He knew the Jewish custom. Once a man named a child and claimed him as his own, according to law and custom, that child was as good as his biological son. Matthew wanted to make it clear that Joseph's lineage applied to Jesus. So he changed, "You you will call him Emmanuel, as in you, the woman who's giving birth, to they will call his name Emmanuel, that they would include Joseph as well as Mary. Perfect. Slight alterations aren't that big a deal. After all, there are different manuscripts and translations out there anyway. Matthew needed to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. This was close enough. A big smile came across Matthew's face. He loved writing this. He could feel God was with him as he worked. This was holy work. Now, there was just one more thing he needed to figure out. Joseph. What point did he want to make with Joseph? How could he illustrate the fulfillment of the law with Joseph? How could he get across the central point of Jesus through that character? Matthew closed his eyes. He began to imagine himself in Joseph's shoes. If there's one thing about this season that causes us so much stress... It's all the to-do lists. You know what I mean? I'm not someone who's a big fan of Christmas decorations, but I feel like I have to put them up. I mean, it's Christmas. What's Christmas without a tree and lights and ornaments? I always like the decorations once they're up, but it's one more thing on the list, and it takes a long time to haul the tree out and unpack everything. Then there are the gifts. Some people like shopping. 
They like searching for just the right gift for each person on their list. But me, I'm someone who hates shopping. (laughs) If hell exists, it would be me shopping. (laughs) That or having to deal with technology that fails. Shopping and failed technology, my hell. I shudder to think about it. But the gifts have to get done. I have to make a list with everyone on it. The mall, traffic, the mall traffic has to be faced at some point, and all the crowds and the lines. Then there are the parties. The Christmas parties are fun, for sure. But can, they can be one more thing on the list, either to put on or to go to. One more thing to have to do. Time to make an appearance. And if you have kids, there are more things on your list there. Santa to visit, gifts to assemble. What about family visits and balancing different sides of the family? Travel. I'm someone who always forgets stuff when he travels. I need to make more lists. Christmas time is fun, but it can also be so exhausting. When the obligations build up enough, you can start looking at the calendar and counting how many days are left until the new year. But you don't want to disappoint people, so you have to push through. More lists, more things to do. Just keep chugging. What if the whole season passes you by? Matthew looked back at his papyrus sheet and tapped his quill against the page as he thought, Joseph, Joseph, what must Joseph have been going through? Here was a righteous man, someone who always followed the law. He had been raised a good Jew like Matthew. Matthew knew what that meant. It meant the law, more details, more things to remember. He was, a person on you could count it, you could, he was a person you could count on to do what's right. He prayed every day according to the Torah. He was the one who showed up early at church to help arrange things for Sunday services. When there was a widow in need, Matthew could be counted on to help. But if there was one thing Matthew remembered about his time as a Jew, it was that he had become overly focused on the lists, what he had to do, what the law required. The law had grown and grown in his mind until it seemed to dominate everything. Joseph, the righteous man like Matthew, the man who always followed the law, But then Joseph discovered that his fiancée was pregnant. She can't hide her baby bump any longer from him. Her parents had scolded her. They can't imagine how it happened. Reluctantly, Mary went to Joseph and let let him know that she was pregnant. At first, Joseph couldn't believe it. Mary? Mary was an adulteress? As if to preempt Joseph, she tried to tell him that she never had sex with anyone. Joseph just nodded. What was he to do? He was a man who fulfilled the law. His obligation before the law was clear. He had to bring Mary to the authorities. If she had not been with a man, she would have to explain it to them. Joseph had to do his duty, follow the law, do what's on his list. Matthew shook his head. If there was one thing about being a follow, about that being a follower of Jesus had taught him, it was that the law was actually more than anything else about people. People always came first. Compassion came first. Matthew turned back to the papyrus in front of him. Joseph was the type of person who would prioritize people. He was not going to follow the law and bring Mary before the authorities. Even before his dream, he would disobey the law for the sake of Mary. And after, after the dream, even once the baby came and people would start asking questions, even then, Joseph would focus on people. The list, the law, the obligations, they were not anything without people. Even if Joseph's friends and relatives would spread rumors, Joseph would still focus on Mary. Matthew looked at what he had written. Yes, that was it. That was the message he wanted to convey. God wanted us to focus on people, not on the list and to-dos. It was about the people because that's where God was. God was with us. With all the people.
That was the message of Jesus, the baby born of the Spirit of God. That was the fulfillment of the law. If only everyone could hear the message. If only everyone could grasp what Matthew knew to be true, then everyone, even his cousin, would discover God anew in this little child. And perhaps the new age would finally begin.